Louis Siegelbaum, welcome to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. Thank you for joining us. Could you just tell us, our audience a little bit about who you are and what you've done? I was born in uh, 1949 in the Bronx borough of New York City, second son of Morton and Blanche Siegelbaum, themselves New York-born uh, Jews, uh, though children of immigrants from uh, the Russian and Austro-Hungarian empires. Grandparents from Odessa, from Riga, Bialystok, and a small town in Galicia that nobody's ever heard of called Kolomea. Uh, my interest in Soviet history uh, didn't, however, derive from my family background, at least not consciously, uh, but rather from my father's politics. In 1939, uh, just after becoming a history teacher in the New York City public school system, uh, my father joined the, the Communist Party of the United States and he remained a teacher and a communist uh, until 1953, when the teachers union leadership under pressure from the New York City Board of Education decided to purge its ranks of communists. This was, of course, McCarthyism. I was too young at the time to know what was going on, but as I grew older, the subject of communism the Soviet origins of my father's uh, faith, which uh, persisted until the day he died in 2008, um, fascinated me. My own political orientation uh, was on the left. Uh, I don't remember exactly when I started considering myself a Marxist, but it probably was in my teens. Uh, I went uh, after high school to Columbia University, where uh, I was an undergraduate in the late 1960s. Uh, and that meant um, that I was part of uh, SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society. Uh, apart from the radical politics in which I engaged at Columbia, um, which included a uh, student uprising uh, in the spring of 1968, uh, 
I studied political science under Stephen Cohen uh, and the Russian language. After graduating in 1970, I went to Oxford to pursue my doctorate in Russian history. Uh, when it came to choosing a topic for my dissertation, contemporary politics had as much to do with it as anything else. Uh, this was toward the end of the Vietnam War, and I wondered about the nexus of war, uh, capitalism, uh, bourgeois support for the war, uh, and anti-war sentiment, and in the case of Russia, revolution. So I ended up writing a dissertation on um, the war industries committees in Russia during the First World War. Uh, the research for the dissertation uh, took me to Moscow in 1973-74. That was my first visit to the Soviet Union. Uh, I spent 10 months there on the U.S.-Soviet exchange program living in MGU, uh, Moscow State University. I received my degree uh, and took up a teaching position in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, it was in the first years I was there that I began to develop a strong interest in social history and specifically labor history. E.P. Thompson's Making of the English Working Class was a big influence. I started researching and writing about Soviet workers I wrote about the phenomenon of so-called socialist competition and eventually the Stakhanovite movement uh, to, uh, dedicated to increasing labor productivity. Uh, this led to work on labor discipline, on industrial accidents and related subjects. I wrote a book on uh, Soviet state and society in the 1920s and in 1989, I participated in a project that took me to uh, the Donbas, specifically Donetsk. Um, and for about 10 years uh, thereafter, I tracked the emergence and fate of the miners' movement across the Soviet, post-Soviet divide. During the 1990s, I got to know historians in Russia more uh, uh, closely, um, none more so than Andrei Konstantinovich Sokolov. With him and his protege, uh, Sergei Zhurovlyov, I put together a collection of documents from Soviet archives that became Stalinism as a way of life. Around the same time, I collaborated with uh, Jim von Geldern to produce a website called 17 Moments in Soviet History. Uh, this is a website that's loaded with archival documents, clips from Soviet movies, and especially newsreels that we obtained from the film and photographic archives uh, in Krasnogorsk outside of Moscow. Um, and the site is dedicated to assisting in the teaching of Soviet history. Each uh, moment 
corresponded to a, a year in Soviet history. What was it like being a man of the left, teaching about the USSR, researching the USSR at the height of the Cold War in the United States and in the West? Well, as I mentioned, I started my teaching career in uh, far off Australia uh, in the mid-1970s. Uh, Australia being a loyal ally or puppet of the United States when it came to uh, foreign policy and uh, the West's uh, alliance. Um, the mid-1970s, though, was an interesting period in, in the history of the Cold War in that it was really at the height of detente. Um, although within a very short period of time, uh, things got more tense, um, partly in relation to um, U.S. support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan uh, and the Soviet invasion of that country, uh, which cast a pall over Soviet-American relations, the end of the 70s and the early 80s. And when I returned to the US uh, and started teaching at Michigan State University in 1983, um, the Cold War was back in, in, in full tilt. Um, and uh, I'll confess that that had both positive and, and negative effects when it came to the teaching of Soviet history. The positive was that uh, students were to learn something about enemy number one, the big bear, uh, the ferocious Soviet Union. So indifference was, shall we say, less of a problem than it was uh, according to many of my colleagues teaching other histories. The negative, of course, is that um, students like most other Americans uh, absorbed a great deal of the stereotypes and negative images that uh, pervaded the mass media. Uh, and uh, otherwise from elsewhere had absorbed um, these kinds of influences. Um, so when I taught, um, Soviet history, I did everything I could to make students realize that people in the Soviet Union were, well, if not ex exactly like us, certainly similar in many ways um, and um, did not behave like the automatons that all too many Americans assume Soviet people were. I eventually became quite fond of showing and discussing um, weepy Soviet films uh, to humanize Soviet people. I remember showing uh, The Cranes Are Flying, Letiat uh, uh, The English is Three Poplars on Ivy Street. Yeah, Three Topolia na a wonderful story about a, a woman from the countryside who comes into Moscow 
uh, to visit a relative and winds up in a taxi during a rainstorm. And uh, she and the taxi driver realize that they're quite fond of each other. Um, and of course, uh, Moscow does not believe in tears, this film from the early 1980s. I also assigned fiction like Natalia Baranskaya is a week like any other, about a woman, a, mo a mother in Moscow, exhausted by the so-called double burden. I assigned personal accounts like Edouard Dune's Notes of a Red Guard, uh, Evgenia Ginsberg's Journey into the Whirlwind, and uh, Nina Lugovskaya's Diary of a Soviet Schoolgirl. I think all of these help to personalize Soviet history for students who, for the most part, had never encountered a person from that part of the world, and it seemed were unlikely to do so in the future. Of course, uh, when I started teaching in the, in the 70s, a lot of these things had not yet become available in English translation or uh, or on film, uh, but um, uh, eventually things improved. What role or how do you feel like the, especially in this period when you were teaching towards the end of the Cold War, um, this relationship between sort of popular American anti-communism and the type of work you were trying to do, um, how did they interact, conflict, both inside, but also I'm curious, like outside the classroom, you know, was it, was it, was there, was there moments when, you know, you were coming and trying to propose some more nuanced and humanized view of the USSR and you were able to kind of like mm, bring that outside of just the discussion in the classroom to sort of, con, you know, engage with the, the, the popular anti-communism of the time. I'll speak specifically to, uh, labor history, if I may. Um, one of the big um, uh, stereotypes or images of the Soviet Union with respect to workers, uh, the working class, uh, the promise of the emancipation of labor is this completely erroneous um, claim that according to Soviet ideology and Soviet leaders, the Soviet Union was a workers paradise. Uh, that that uh, that the Soviet Union had created a utopia for workers. Um, there's absolutely no evidence, and I've looked into this, that uh, Soviet leaders from Lenin onwards claimed that the country they were leading was a workers paradise. Uh, neither Stalin nor anyone else referred to the Soviet Union as a worker's paradise. A worker's state? Yes. Um, 
and that was bad enough because it soon became apparent that the Bolsheviks had decided the workers needed guidance because they were too backward or too impoverished or too this or too that. But the Soviet Union is a worker's paradise? Never. This dim distant future, you know, was held out there as a, uh, an objective, you know, the end point of history might be a worker's paradise. But as a description of reality, no. Um, now, so I wondered, you know, where did this come from and uh, why was it so pervasive? And when I say it's pervasive, you know, you, there, all you have to do is Google workers paradise, Soviet Union, and tons of stuff come up. So um, in 1937, an American journalist by the name of Eugene Lyons published a book called um, uh, Assignment in Utopia. Lyons had been a leftist pro-communist, although not, member of, not a member of the party, journalist who went to the Soviet Union in the 1920s lived there for a number of years, then got disillusioned and came back and wrote about all the terrible things that he had witnessed um, in the land that communists supposedly claimed was a utopia. And if that weren't bad enough, 30 years later, he compounded his crime by publishing a book called Workers' Paradise Lost. 50 years of Soviet communism. Now, of course, it's hard to tell how influential these things are, but um, in uh, some of this uh, searching that I did to uh, find out where and when such images uh, uh, emerged, I came across uh, a um, an interesting uh, exhibition that was held in 1942 called Das Soviet Paradis. You know where it was held? In Berlin. So this was the Nazis showing how awful things were in the Soviet Union the supposed workers' paradise. Yeah. So uh, that's a long way of of <laughs> answering your question about you know the images and the stereotypes and the ways in which certain assumptions about the nature of the Soviet Union and what the what Soviet uh, leaders were trying to do or how they conceived of, of what they were doing have been so badly distorted that you have to unravel these things before you can get at what they actually were trying to do. Wait, just to clarify, in 1942, the term paradise was used as a pejorative kind of by the Nazi regime uh, when they were having this exhibition. Yeah, uh, it, uh, I've got the full title here. It's Aufstellung der Reichspropaganda 
Leitung, ja, das Sowjet, Sowjet Paradies. In 1942, ja? Yeah? Ja, yeah, Berlin, ja. Yeah. Ja, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say about right. So this actually is really, really helpful. Uh, the the sort of how these things come to be because then it becomes so strong and such a strong imagery that you are no longer able to even come up with another one because this idea of how it is. Um, but it's like you know, for mostly you know, the phrases are we are building communism. You know, it's this idea of like right. we are process and so the joke sometimes in georgia will go is now after 30 years of kaplan's will say you know how in communism they told us we're always building communism but we never got there now they're telling us we're building capitalism we're not getting there either so it's like this like this everyone's like just trust the process <laughs> so um what what is it like then can you tell us more about how different soviet leaders if you if you remember on top of your head this is sort of a herculean task i'm telling you um, but like, what are some of the ways that they have conceived of the Soviet Union? And are there any differences between, say, Lenin, Stalin, yeah. you know, Shove and so on, Gorbachev? Well, Gorbachev, we know, was the worst, but still one of the ways that they would talk about the Soviet Union to themselves and others. Yeah. Well, so the, I mean, just the quick run through is uh, that, uh, you know, two steps back, one step forward, uh, you know, things were so chaotic and desperate in the early years that, um, you know, Lenin uh, uh, accommodated elements of capitalism as a way of trying to get back to where they were as so to speak in terms of productivity and so forth uh, uh hence the so-called new economic policy of the 20s um which uh you know uh, among other communist leaders was assumed to that would last a long time indeed lenin at some point indicated seriously and for a long time was the phrase. And it was a phrase that Bukharin invoked frequently. Uh, on the left, um, you know, there was a certain impatience and, and concern about capitalist restoration. Uh, Trotsky uh, being articulate about that. Um, by the end of the 20s, with Trotsky ousted uh, so uh, Stalin makes his move and there's this tremendous mobilization of everything to um, accelerate uh, the building of communism. And, uh, you know, after all the chaos and bloodshed of the first five-year plan of collectivization and industrialization and you know, deportations and so forth. You know, there's the so-called Victor's Congress in 1934, the 17th Party Congress, at which, uh, you know, classes, exploitative classes have been eliminated. Uh, we're on the road. Road is, of course, a favorite metaphor for, you know, party policy. And... Um, 
you know, socialism has has been achieved. We're on the road to the to, to the next phase. Um, well, that tends to get uh, you know temporarily diverted in the as a result of the first the purges, but then the Second World War. Um, and eventually, um, you know, a more sort of a, a glimmering uh, vision is produced under Khrushchev, um, in which uh, not only is communism obtainable, you know, in the relatively near future, but also the national differences among Soviet peoples will be overcome. So this is in the 50s and into the 60s when there is an emphasis on uh, uh, you know, this sort of um, growing closer together and even Slyania, the merging of Soviet peoples into, you know, sort of one. Uh, but uh, of course, Khrushchev uh, had uh, um, certain excesses uh, of, of, of another nature as well. And uh, harebrained scheming is the, the term that is most often was, was used at the time to explain why Khrushchev needed to be ousted. And, and so a more sober and sobering vision comes to replace that under Brezhnev, um, uh, you know, with this, uh, this slogan of actually existing socialism. Uh, you know, the act, of course, many jokes uh, emanated from, 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 from each of those three words. Um, uh, and a kind of cynicism comes much to the fore, uh, particularly among intelligentsia, I would say, in the, in the late 60s and, 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 you know, much more so in the 70s and, and 80s. And then, of course, come the series of, of gerontocratic leaders, yes, uh, Andropov and Chernyenko, and until the relatively youthful Gorbachev uh, takes over and, well, we know the rest of the story. That's my, that's my three or five minute run through of Soviet history. <laughs> you know, you mentioned earlier that you were interested in labor um, and you have this book called Making Workers Soviet. And we discussed, of course, like whether or not the Soviet Union could or should be uh, considered a worker's paradise. But I'm interested in this question of the transformation of uh, the working class of the late Russian Empire into not only a bigger by virtue of the number of workers, but also this transformation of an identity into a Soviet one. And if you could just talk a little bit about that process, what that was like, and what that means for the trajectory of the first worker state. Mm. Okay, um, I'll try to be brief, but I probably won't be because <laughs> this is this is my life's work, more or less. Um, well, as I look back over the long array of Soviet history, I I'm actually more and more fascinated by the early period, the first few years, um, because of the myriad possibilities, even in the midst of that chaos and, and starvation. Um, because, you know, 
workers' power was one of the ins inspiring things about the revolution. Uh, what did it mean in actuality? You know, how was it to be effectuated? Um, you know, did it mean workers would take control of the means of production themselves? Well, you know, it had never been done before, really, but now was maybe the opportunity. Um, or did, you know, workers' control have a slightly less ambitious meaning? Would it just be to kind of control or check up on managers and engineers and experts and others? Um, and then there's the question of uh, labor productivity, which I have devoted a lot of my uh, scholarly research uh, trying to understand. Um, you know, how is that to happen without the stick of capitalism and the, you know, capitalist bosses being there? Um, so in these, in these early years, there were a lot of things that were tried out. Uh, and some of them were very contradictory. So for example, there were in the early 20s, uh, institutions called Comrades Disciplinary Courts. Um, and then in the late 20s and early 30s, uh, so-called production collectives and communes. Um, And the more and more I've come to see those collectives and communes as uh, encapsulating the most attractive features of Soviet communism. Collective responsibility uh, among work units, sharing rewards uh, equally as long as you're doing the best you can. Um, and I've also come to see the suppression of these institutions that workers themselves created uh, on the grounds that, uh, as Stalin put it, uh, they were petty bourgeois, they were examples of petty bourgeois egalitarianism perpetrated by leftist blockheads, as he described them in the 17th Party Congress speech, in that victory. Congress of 1934. So the suppression of these worker of these production collectives and communes, I see as one of the tragedies of Soviet uh, history. Now, among historians of Soviet labor, I um, was and probably remain uh, in the small minority of those who did not consider resistance as the only worthy subject when it came to Soviet workers. Uh, I recognize that Soviet workers did resist from time to time in a variety of ways. Um, the, resisting the imposition of labor discipline when it got too oppressive, uh, resisting increased output norms, uh, payment, obligatory payments of various kinds. But to me, the strategy of accommodation was more pervasive and not necessarily uh, less interesting. Um, actually, what do I mean by that? Workers now deprived of collective of any collective means of asserting their influence 
or uh, even redressing the imbalance of power between the state and themselves, um, had to resort to largely depoliticized reactions in the form of things like high turnover, absenteeism, haphazard fulfillment of orders, and most of all, um, seizing a significant degree of control over the individual labor process. Um, and this, of course, set off action-reaction uh, syndrome between them and management and, uh, and, and uh, political uh, party uh, officials. Um, but you ask about Making Workers Soviet, and um, that's a book that I uh, co-edited with my dear friend, uh, whom you know, Ron Suni. Um, and it, it, the, 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 the book has an interesting uh, history. So it was published in 1994, based on a conference that took place at Michigan State University in November 1990. When this conference occurred, labor history, and I speak here not just about Soviet history, but the, the approach to history that emphasizes labor in general, uh, this was in its heyday. Uh, and so Ron Suni and I um, co-hosted the conference and co-edited the book. And in the preface to that book, we mentioned that the impetus came from a book called Working Class Formation, 19th Century Patterns in Western Europe and the United States. And, you know, we, we acknowledge that this book had stimulated us to think along parallel lines about the formation of the Soviet working class. The conference and the volume attracted, without any false modesty, I'll say, the creme de la creme of historians of Russian and Soviet history, um, specifically labor history, including such senior scholars as uh, Misha Levin, Reginald Zelnik, Sheila Fitzpatrick, and comparative youngsters such as Stephen Kotkin. We all thought, oh, I can't speak for everyone, most of us thought that we were at the cutting edge in understanding Soviet working class formation, not only as a matter of uh, assembling industrial workers in factories, but also as, and here I'm gonna quote from the introduction that Ron Suni and I wrote, a political and cultural postulate, the assertion of a particular kind of social identity, no less real than the demonstrable facts of social fact of social positions defined by relations of production. So in other words, uh, making workers Soviet, as the title of the volume had it, was about languages of trade becoming the language of class. It was about, uh, and I'm now referring to uh, contributions to the volume, white collar workers as the hidden class, um, uh, of how uh, a self-conscious and proud industrial working class got swamped by raw peasants during the first five-year plan. 
when millions fleeing collectivization wound up in uh, the wage earning industrial working class. Um, and of workers taking advantage of attacks on their bosses during the terror of the late 1930s. Anyway, as I mentioned a moment ago, we thought we were at the cutting edge, but it turned out we were on a ledge, uh, or to change the metaphor, at the end of the road. Uh, uh, less uh, setting an agenda for writing, thinking about and writing Soviet history uh, than something of a swan song. Labor history, as it turned out, had lost its cachet by the mid-1990s. Um, it had ceased to be interesting or offer much to other historians. And although very good books uh, would uh, be published uh, subsequently uh, on the Stalin era, uh, it seemed to me that it was time to move on, that is to move ahead to explore um, other kinds of uh, uh, phenomena uh, with on, on a different methodological uh, terrain. Now, as, I, uh, as I've written um, uh, fairly recently, labor history had a, has had a second coming in the new millennium. Um, thanks uh, in part to um, new approaches that have expanded the meaning of labor. So uh, there's been really good work on domestic labor, uh, on service workers, uh, on those involved in uh, cultural production. Um, and this not just in the period that making Soviet workers was about the 20s and 30s, but uh, I would say even more so um, later uh, decades of Soviet history. And I should mention uh, here um, uh, a couple of examples, but uh, some of which come from um, East, uh, people uh, concerned with Eastern Europe, with communist Eastern Europe, and indeed people from Eastern Europe uh, who have been writing really outstanding work in, in, in recent years. Um, I can mention names if you are interested. Um, at the same time, there are those who, unlike me, stuck with labor history through the thick and thin. <laughs> uh, people like Wendy Goldman, uh, Donald Filzer, who have teamed up, incidentally, to produce uh, some really good work uh, on uh, material conditions during the Great Patriotic War, um, for example. And um, uh, Don Filzer's own work, uh, um, has uh, has continued, and uh, there have been labor histories of much more recent times, including even post-Soviet labor. Um, so labor history is far from dead, but it just so happens that making Soviet workers uh, appeared during a uh, an interim uh, in the in the in the in the long durée of Soviet labor history. So. Um, you discussed miners, and I kind of want to go to you uh, from the beginning. You said that you have traced sort of miners, whatever happened to the Donbass, the Donetsk miners, and how they have moved across the so post Soviet space, I believe you said. Yeah. Could you talk a bit about that? I, th I find that fascinating. And um, yeah. I think miners being such a big part of the Soviet worker imaginary, you know. 
the, the miners yeah. everything. Right. So um, this was uh, the project. This stemmed from the project that I participated in um, in uh, in uh, 1989 uh, when uh, uh, I was invited to participate in a uh, sister city uh, project involving Pittsburgh and uh, the former steel town of the US and Donetsk. Uh, and I joined up uh, with um, a couple of uh, scholars um, uh, and a, uh, a scholar filmmaker by the name of Daniel Wolkowitz. Uh, and uh, the result of this collaborative project uh, was um, a, uh, a film uh, called Perestroika from Below uh, that was uh, produced in 1990, 91, 90, 1990. And um, a book uh, called Workers of the Donbass Speak, which was based on interviews that we did with miners, members of their families, uh, uh, managerial personnel, um, former Komsomol activists, etc., in Donetsk, uh, as well as uh, now that I recall, steel workers, as well, um, to give us accounts of their lives, uh, both uh, working lives and outside of the mines. And we returned twice uh, again in 1990 and in 1992, uh, the last time to actually show them the film that we had made and to get their reactions. And then I continued for about 10 years or so to track what happened to the miners movement, uh, which uh, you know had initially taken the form of these independent strike committees to prosecute the strike against the, the Ministry of Coal Production in the Soviet Union. And then uh, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, um, the formation of the Independent Miners Union, actually, I think now that, that occurred shortly before the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, but then... Um, uh, in Donetsk to uh, deal with the newly independent Ukrainian state's uh, administration of the coal mines. So I tracked that for about 10 years, um, during which miners experienced uh, non-payment of wages. Uh, that was a widespread phenomenon in those post-Soviet years. Um, hunger strikes, uh, various other kinds of actions uh, to try to uh, rectify what had become a disastrous situation. Uh, eventually, I lost track of, of the people whom I had tried to maintain contact with. Um, and by 2014, 
when Donetsk and the Donbass suddenly reemerged in the world's news, um, it proved impossible for me to reestablish those contacts, try as I did. I'm curious, do you remember when you were talking to any of these miners or um, steel workers uh, in the post-Soviet period, how they discussed or talked about the Soviet period? Mm. Oh, yes. Uh, so there was a lot of nostalgia. Uh, there was a lot, as Sopa was telling me earlier about people in Georgia, um, at, at one and the same time, almost in the same breath that, you know, uh, everyone from Stalin to Gorbachev would be denounced uh, in the most uh, lurid way, um, there would be acknowledgement and indeed a certain amount of pride in um, uh, that things were relatively good. Uh, of course, that in itself is something of an indication of how thing how bad things had become. Uh, and when I say things, I'm not just talking about material deprivation, but the kind of um, a disorientation and um, sort of psychological trauma that so many people experienced in those immediate post-Soviet years. There was also a lot of naivete uh, about um, what capitalism, what or not, they didn't necessarily talk in terms of capitalism, but free markets or freeing of markets could do, okay? So the notion was that coal mining was, was a particularly egregiously depressed industry in the Soviet Union because of uh, it being a, uh, and this was an actual term used in Soviet economic discourse, a planned loss industry. That is the price of coal was depressed so that it could be afforded by all other industries and consumers um, with the ministry and eventually the individual mining associations getting subsidies from the state to make up the difference. That was the formula, right? But for miners, this, this smacked of what they called ministerial feudalism. So they were serfs of the ministries that the ministry that got the funds that really in fact belonged to them right so come the end of the soviet union and you know the freeing from this uh feudalism they thought that the real price of coal if they could market the coal themselves hunky-dory, <laughs> the worker's paradise. No, I'm, I'm being facetious. <laughs> um, you know, that things would improve considerably. Well, it didn't turn out that way. Um, and that's a complicated story of why not, but uh, part of it has to do with oligarchs moving in and seizing control of, of the mines and 
manipulating prices to their advantage and keeping as much of it as they yeah. could. But what is there a cold industry where that doesn't happen in the no, world? No, I don't course. know. Mining industry in the world where it's not the same story of insanely authoritarian like businesses who who run it like you know a mini country that area and and completely oppress all miners. So like it's interesting because there really isn't any examples of where that's like oh look everyone has some power or the miners are finally seeing you know, any of their incredibly hard work and very, you know, environmentally and for their health wise work. Same thing in Georgia, exactly. Like the worst jobs, minor mining, and these towns are insanely impoverished. Like there's nothing, there's mono economy, at least in the Soviet Union, there's just to be a diversification of having, you know, a few, few things more, you know, that would sort of create at least a community and the community is completely depressed. There's just only a, a mine and, you know, getting drunk or smoking weed and like trying to make it uh, and forget about your life. And that almost the miners were like that, just trying to forget that they, work this horrible job in this small town away from everyone. There's nothing around or gamble. Another thing. Yeah. And I mean, there are, there are other characteristic features that, uh, you know, are uh, lamentable. Uh, I'm thinking of the kind of, uh, well, there's the gender division of labor, you know, producing a kind of macho ism among minors. Um, uh, and, um, uh, you know, that, of course, you know, a certain camaraderie, a sort of male, male, strong male bonding, but also, uh, you know, an inability to care about uh, the labor of anybody else, such as to try to create solidarities. You know, this is so hard to do. You mentioned that in the in, in Donbass and in Donetsk, these miners who had critiques of the idea of a kind of feudal relationship with the ministry, ministerial feudalism. Um, and then that, when the Soviet Union starts to collapse, them viewing the market as being some alternative to that. And what's interesting is that, if I understood you correctly, is that they were critiquing one of the social benefits that was actually making their life better, which was the thing, which was the depressed um, value of the coal. And so that to me is a really interesting contradiction. I, I don't know if you have any comment about that, but that's a really interesting contradiction, right? That the workers themselves are sort of posing the thing, which is actually making their life say better than in, in some other position it could be. Yeah. So there are two, two aspects to this uh, that, that I, I need to mention. One is, yeah, they were sort of bought off is one way of looking at it in that the uh, some of the subsidies went towards uh, what were relatively very high wages. Um, so miners were among the highest paid workers in the Soviet Union on average. On the other hand, um, what they... Uh, very uh, acutely felt was that not enough of the subsidies were going into improving the conditions of mining. Um, and uh, mining was becoming increasingly uh, 
dangerous, um, particularly in the Donbass, an old mining region. Uh, and um, so they, they, they were harsh in their complaints and criticisms of the lack of in reinvestment in uh, safety, in um, equipment, in other technologies that could have made mining safer. Uh, the, the casualty and injury rates in mining uh, are uh, uh, really horrific uh, when it comes to the late Soviet uh, period. Doesn't that sort of limit that workers don't always know the full scope of things because it's like this idea of sort of romanticizing that workers like know everything and they could run things. It's a little bit limited still because in practice, you sort of know a certain part of a bigger puzzle. And if and it's and it's easy as well, especially you know as as a union person, you know, if you're trying to build up a case against your boss, you're sort of willing to believe anything, right, against the boss because you need that to sort of pump people up. Um, and so they can be uh, very much manipulated by other forces, like against Soviet Union. Or we can use the Chile example is a great one, you know, against Allende, how they had uh, miners go against uh, Allende and, and start strikes at first, you know? So like there is that limitation of like, workers aren't always the most like advanced part of, of society at that moment, depending on, you know, whatever the context is. Even though I would say, unfortunately, the elites were not the advanced in Soviet Union. <laughs> what was the things that they were doing? Yeah, that, that's brilliant. Uh, I really, uh, I remember a piece I wrote uh, with the title, Freedom of Prices and the Price of Freedom. That is, so the freeing of prices was one of the big objectives of the miners uh, along the lines of what I explained earlier that they assumed that, you know, with the, getting the real price of coal, things would improve. Now, yeah, so the miners knew very well what their working conditions were. And, you know, they knew very well even that they were being bought off in a way. Um, what they didn't know and what, you know, is not easy to grasp for anyone is really the, you know, the larger circuit of capital, uh, even the global circuit, uh, that um, you know, makes it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to be able to uh, participate in the market as a worker and um, and get the the <laughs> the true value of labor of your labor. Um, I mean, you got to be a Marxist, <laughs> and that takes a lot of study, <laughs> a lot of yeah. I'm I'm being semi facetious. Yeah. No, but it's true. I mean, I'm 39 and I constantly feel like I don't possess any of the knowledge I'm supposed to have to make even basic decisions. Like it's such a 
difficult process you have to learn all the time question re-question you know question again your your assertions then it's economy so complex if you want to even 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 if having the most marxist methodology and, and tools you have to constantly see how things change and you know it's a really it's a really difficult process to be able to understand what's happening so that's why i'm like I generally think that, um, you know, I do think there's a left, again, I was, I think I'm one of them as well, to some to some degrees that sort of romanticize and fetishize the people or workers as like all knowing without having um, people, other people who are dedicated just to study, you know, because it's important to have a complete, at least a, more of a complete picture, because I don't know if we'll ever have a complete picture of anything. Look at the the bourgeois press, right? They have millions of people dedicated to this, and they still get it wrong all the time. <laughs> so they're, they're much more well-equipped than we are. Um, but with, uh, you know, with minors, um, you know, they, uh, can you talk about some of the things they had? Like, um, I know you said there was a sister city program. Hmm. You went. Uh, I was listening to Fiona Hill, who is the national advisor to Biden, or I don't know if she still is, but was or to Trump at first, and then I think Trump, Biden. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but I think she was at some. I'm not sure, but anyway, so very high ranking, number one sort of talk to, to some number one person, go to person for Russia. And she discussed how she learned Russian and went to, I think, Donbass herself, because she came from a British mining community yep. where they had the miners had a, uh, the, the British miners and the Donbass miners had some exchange programs. Mm. And then the miners had gathered money for her to go and learn Russian mm. and and study in Soviet Union, and mm. then which she used sort of the miners' money and the working class connections because she's from there to then sort of work her way up being a Russian advisor in the U.S. Mm. Probably the highest I don't know, office anyone can reach. So I thought that was an incredible story. I don't I don't personally like how she used it at the end, but. Um, but really, this seems like the miners had a lot of connections, you know, like the sister city, like the other minor unions. It it looks like it was really well connected, also autonomous, not only you know from just the leadership, but they seem to have their own community and connections themselves. Do you can maybe can you talk about that if you if you do know? Well, I uh, I remember that we tried to um, discuss uh, the experience of miners both in the US and in Britain with the miners in Donetsk. Um, after all, remember that in the eighties, there was still this uh, aura of um, the miners in Britain having been um, really militant, albeit uh, eventually repressed by Thatcher. Uh, and there was some militants among miners in the U.S. that, you know, we had talked up. But as far as connections are concerned, what comes to mind are the connections between Donetsk miners and miners elsewhere in the Soviet Union, um, particularly Kuzbas miners, uh, and even in the uh, far north, 
trying to remember Norilsk maybe, um, as well as even to some extent, uh, even because of their otherwise political differences uh, with uh, miners in Western Ukraine. Um, and uh, so th this sense of, you know, an all union miners movement uh, was something that was very much part of those last years of the Soviet Union. Now with the breakup of the Soviet Union, of course, that didn't seem quite so salient. Um, but um, the other thing of course is with workers in other kinds of industries. So there's a very good book by Stephen Crowley, who was actually part of our team called Hot Coal, Cold Steel. And it was about why coal miners in the Soviet Union were so relatively militant and why steel workers were not. Uh, and he looked at both Donbass and Kuzbass. Um, and you know, the short answer is along the lines of what I was saying earlier about the planned loss nature of the coal mine industry, and that steel workers, you know, were a little less under the uh, the thumb of uh, the the ministries responsible for for steel making. So had a little more autonomy. Sorry, the coal miners were really well paid though, right? Yes. So why were I mean, they sort of not complain, but why would they have any because problems? With they, because it was, it was dangerous and increasingly dangerous work because, um, you know, the old images of heroic miners, Stakhanov <laughs> and others were wearing very thin. Um, uh, and, you know, their ambitions were to gain control via the market. How would that help them be more safe? <laughs> like that's, how does, how is controlling the market? This sort of things that I get asked all the time because when we ask for things, they're like, how does this make sense? <laughs> At the time there was not much awareness, at least in that part of the world of, you know, the e ecological, damage and devastation of mining. Um, but uh, certainly uh, a need for improved technology. The mines were incredibly deep um, and uh, you know, better equipment and better safety conditions. All of this was very much in the forefront. And the notion was that if they got the true value of the coal that they sold, or that their mining associations sold, they, that m more could be invested in safety and equipment and, and so forth. Now, you know, in retrospect, you would want to say more could be invested in alternative sources of energy that they would then be a part of the decision-making process and not left out, hung, hung out to dry. I mean, this is the kind of discussions that go on in this country about, you know, um, why 
you know, why why do uh, Appalachian miners vote so consistently Republican? Uh, because you know the the Democrats talk about green energy and the Green New Deal and what's in it for them. Well, if they were part of the process, maybe something would be in it for them. So really, co-management would have probably eased up on some of those things. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. A really, that's a really interesting point. Being part of the decision-making process. Absolutely. And also made them realize that their, their industry wasn't as lucrative as they thought. By, by being part of the co you know, the management. Okay, that's a really interesting point. Thank you so much for that. Were there particular demands by the workers of co-management? Yes. Like, yes, so like everywhere in Soviet Union, there was a demand for a co-management as yeah, one so of there, their- Yeah, the, so there was this um, institution under Gorbachev called, Something like labor collective, but that's not the right term. It's um, this is in per during perestroika, right? Yes, during perestroika, which you know the miners regarded as window dressing, as you know, really not 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 serious. But they seized the opportunity presented by these. Oh, damn, I wish I could remember the term <laughs> to infuse them with worker participation. Um, Council of Labor Collectives. They were called Councils of Labor Collectives, right? Sovieti Trudovich Kolektivov. And they held elections to these. And, you know, it was management elected its members and the workers. And I remember exactly whether it was dependent on the, on the union or, or not. Um, elected theirs. And uh, so these councils of labor collectives, anyway, <laughs> I dare say you can find a lot about this in, in the Workers of the Donbass Speak book where it's discussed uh, at, at some length. Yeah, and that was about co-management. Was there any kind of phenomena before Perestroika that had similar demands when you were studying sort of the different ways that the workers instead of resisted, accommodated, what it did in those times was there um an attempt mm. before Perestroika to um formulate this kind of demand well what i know best are those production collectives and communes i spoke of earlier going back to the 20s and early 30s uh you know but there, this is in the context of a really basic uh sort of you know uh a fork in the road where um, uh, relying on tried and true methods of capitalist, you know, technology and expertise uh, was one of the forks, you know, and the other was to try to create something new uh, and, you know, there is this uh, scientific management of labor movements that um, was all of it. Taylorism is the popular term, right? Uh, time and motion studies, uh, relying on the expertise of, of, uh, of engineers to um, study the minutia of 
of the of the of labor activity. Um, all of that comes to become part of Soviet labor practice to the expense of, or at the expense of, you know, any really uh, collective worker participation. Now, I'm sure there are initiatives in later decades um, that I should know more about, <laughs> but uh, not, nothing, nothing quite as momentous or as, uh, you know, potentially um, distinct as those uh, or late 20s, early 30s phenomena. So one of the most interesting things is like Georgia mines, all the equipment is from the Soviet era, no upgrades really for the past 30 years. Um, they say sometimes when they do bring a new machine, it breaks very quickly. So they just rely on the tried and tested methods of Soviet, of Stalin era um, uh, equipment often. And they have, um, increase their time in the mines um like example is actually the coal mines um and manganese mines where manganese they want to have the workers for 12 hours underground or in you know in the mine instead of what in the soviet era was seven hours and yeah. and all these institutes you know like occupational health and and labor medicine would forbid, you know, more than seven hours because it's so bad for your health. Um, and even the accidents in coal mines have gotten really bad. A lot of people died because during the Soviet era, actually, they had walled off certain sections because they were so dangerous. It was like easy to mine there, but it was also more dangerous because they were sort of pursuing profit. They'd remove the safety, like hatch or whatever it was that was covering them. And then, then a lot of the workers, you know, they they died, exploded. Um, so it's interesting to see that again, now in Georgia also we don't have any more labor medicine or institute. It's been completely gone. It's 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 uh, what's the word? I mean, ban, not banned, erased. Like it doesn't exist. Disbanded. There you go. That's that's a better word. So um, there's nothing to monitor what happens in these mines, um, especially long-term health and safety. And so it's one of the most unsafe places now to work, even worse, way worse than in the Soviet Union. And not even discussing how they uh, they don't even throw and dispose the coal anymore in the back of the mountains. They put it right in front of the residential areas and things like that that happen. Um, so it's, it's quite... I'm trying, I don't know about like what Georgia miners were like before the Soviet Union. They're ones who work there still. Uh, and they, of course, have nostalgia and they constantly talk about how much better it was during the Soviet Union. They're actually the ones that made me rethink. It was actually miners that made me rethink about Soviet Union as being, you know, totally bad. <laughs> and they were the ones telling me how they had extra food because they were minors. They had mm. more time to relax and sent to sanatoriums and, yeah. uh, you know, I'm in the mines and like all these like really um, 
I won't say workers paradise, but it was pretty like comparatively yeah, no. to what I knew. Yeah, we, miners. we we went with them to we went with the Donetsk miners to the Kurort, uh, and it was really really nice. And I I haven't been to such nice places very often. <laughs> yeah. It was palaces for the workers. I mean, there's still some there there that we still have here. I mean, mo most of them are, of course, just standing there empty or being sold to like five star hotels. But when you look at the architecture, I mean, it really was attempting to build beautiful places that used to be only for the rich, for the working class. So maybe how do you. I mean, that's like the story that never really gets told. Uh, a lot of these, like, especially a lot of labor books or people who are like talk about Soviet labor, they never really mention the, the also the like luxury that came with it. Um, you know, so many special stores and breaks and things that's unimaginable to me at this point of, you know, what West Virginia miners were dying in poverty and like ever having access to sanatoriums like we have, like that's unimaginable to me. There's a, there's a good book by my friend Diane Conker called uh, Club Red, which is, uh, uh, you know, it's about the, the, the sanatoria. Uh, and, uh, you know, she got some very good material uh, to work with for that. You know, there is this kind of image sometimes of, of the Soviet Union um, as being a place that was short on goods or people starving when of course we all know here that it's much that's not the case uh, for the majority of the history um and uh, i know that lewis you um wrote a book about the soviet automobile and you have some other things written about consumption practices in the ussr and so i guess my 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 question is you know, as somebody who studied the production of the Soviet automobile and the consumption or purchasing of the Soviet automobile and what its effect on Soviet society was, I mean, what can you what what does the Soviet automobile mean in, in, in the Soviet story and how did it, you know, affect uh, Soviet society and how do you view um, its place in the development of a more consumption-oriented kind of mature socialism. Yeah. Um, uh, so I came to write this book called Cars for Comrades. Uh, sometime in the late 90s, uh, when I was in Moscow, I started noticing how ubiquitous cars had become. I mean, not just the traffic, uh, but, um, you know, cars parked on sidewalks for lack of parking spaces in the streets and TV ads and billboards advertising both Russian and foreign made cars and so forth. And I suddenly began to wonder about cars in the Soviet period. You know, why were they so relatively rare were they incompatible with Soviet socialism? Uh, did, did their status as the most sort of iconic consumer item of 20th century capitalism have anything to do with it? 
And what of the relatively few Soviet cars that were produced? Were they really so inferior to those made elsewhere in the world as their reputation suggested? And if so, why? And who owned those cars? And how did they acquire them and service them? So all of those questions inspired uh, the book that I wrote. And another was that after spending most of my career writing about the Stalin era and then the collapse of the Soviet Union, I wanted to do a broader project, you know, more chronologically comprehensive, um, something that in fact would span the entire Soviet period. Um, and then uh, uh, this is also when I became more interested in the history of uh, material culture and consumption. So for several years uh, during the, uh, new, the new millennium, I, I did little else but think about Soviet cars. Uh, and this meant immersing myself in the enormous literature on the history of cars in general, design, production, consumption, uh, learning about all kinds of car-related stuff. Um, and uh, I also want to say a new vocabulary since my knowledge of Russian up to that point had not included various car parts and things of that sort. Um, it meant uh, reading every issue I could of the Soviet car magazine called Za Rulyom, Behind the Wheel, which started publication in 1928. And it meant pouring over novels and movies in which cars uh, were uh, central. Um, I'll, sk I'll skip the titles. <laughs> um, it meant traveling twice to Toliati, uh, the car town on the Volga, uh, home of the Volga automobile factory, Vaz, uh, which mass produced eventually the quintessential Soviet car, the Lada or Zhiguli, um, which was actually a knockoff of the Fiat 124. Um, I visited you know, the assembly line and I talked with technical personnel and I took part in two conferences that Vaz sponsored. Um, and so, uh, um, okay, so what, 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 what was the book about? Um, I decided that the book would move from production to consumption with a spinal chapter in the middle on roads. So the three production chapters uh, would be anchored by the locations of the principal factories. So there's a chapter on uh, the Moscow factory uh, uh, Zis, which then became Zil, so the factory named after Stalin, which in the early 60s was renamed the factory after Lichachov, who was the longtime director of that factory, um, and uh, which produced a, a series of um, originally uh, Ford knockoff cars. Uh, and uh, then the uh, the uh, iconic uh, Chaika, the long limousine. Nizhny uh, Novgorod or Gorky, with a Gorky automobile factory was 
built uh, in the uh, early 30s. That was a Ford project. Um, and then finally, Togliatti. So each would begin with the founding of the enterprise and work toward the present, each of those three chapters. The chapter on roads would encompass the entire Soviet period and include efforts to overcome uh, what was called biezdarozhye, or roadlessness. Um, trying to remember that slogan that uh, was something like, uh, roads are expensive, but roadlessness is more expensive. And in Russian, it's uh, so, uh, Yeah. Uh, and uh, the the ways in which uh, road construction was popularized and uh, um, uh, all kinds of roads were, uh, the building of roads were celebrated. And finally, there would be two chapters uh, chronologically organized on the material culture and consumption of cars. The first from the revolution up to the great patriotic war and the second from the war uh, to the end of the Soviet Union. Um, but of course that wasn't the, the end of the story as far as my um, attempt to understand cars in, and as, as sort of uh, material culture and consumption objects in the Soviet Union. So in, in the midst of writing that book, I edited a, a book on private spheres in Soviet Russia, which I called Borders of Socialism. Uh, and that came about when I suddenly realized that quite a few people were working on different aspects of private space. And that one of the under-investigated aspects of Soviet life was this uh, very interesting distinction between private space and um, that is uh, uh, yeah and the personal so personal and private meant two different things in Soviet discourse uh, personal was fine and legal private was frowned upon and often illegal. Um, so people could buy cars, that was their personal property, supposedly. Um, it was not their private property. That is, that is to say, it was not to be used for income deriving activity. Yeah. Refrigerators were personal property just like cars. This was the Soviet legal uh, system. Uh, so uh, other, other uh, contributions to this, uh, to this uh, volume on private spheres included um, the so-called private plots that peasants, uh, collective farm, collective farm families had, or again, uh, actually, you know, the legal term was personal 
subsidiary plots, right? Not private. Um, uh, the cooperative enterprises in the Soviet Union and uh, the one that was uh, um, the focus was the Palyek cooperative. That's where they made those black lacquer boxes in this village called Palyek. Um, pet keeping, yeah, pet ownership. Um, the attempts, state efforts to standardize domestic space and furnishings. So this is kind of the intervention of the state, particularly under Khrushchev. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the last, the last uh, contribution I think had to do with the proto-hippie movement of the 50s and 60s in, uh, in the Baltic states, uh, republics. My own contribution to that volume, other than the theoretical introduction, was an essay called Cars, Cars, and More Cars, The Faustian Bargain of the Brezhnev Era. And I meant that, so I, I associated two things with the Faustian bargain. One is that for the Soviet state, and particularly party ideologists, to ramp up production and consumption of cars was um, necessary because of the tremendous intense desire for cars that emanated from Soviet urban society. Um, but um, that it was very problematic because no matter how stringently the border between the personal and the private was patrolled, there was no way that authorities could prevent people from using cars to make money. What ways was the Soviet state, I guess, as cars were becoming more widely distributed amongst the population, like how was the Soviet state encouraging, especially in late socialism, people to use cars? I mean, were there campaigns, I think if I remember correctly, campaigns for, you know, going on road trips or using the cars for personal ways? And, and what were those like? Yeah. Oh, so auto tourism was uh, was something that was celebrated um, as a kind of civilizing or modernizing uh, activity. Um, you know, there were so there's this big auto club that is this kind of semi-state voluntary society uh, that projected images of, you know, road culture. Um, and so, but it's not so much trying to get people to buy cars because demand always outstripped supply. Um, they couldn't produce cars fast enough. Uh, the waiting time to get cars uh, barely diminished over the long Whole of those last Soviet decades. It was years and years. Um, and, you know, as fast as they would could turn them out, uh, there, were, there were no auto showrooms to, you know, think about whether I wanted a car or not, or try out this or that. You, you put in your order years in advance. You know, the Soviet Union obviously emphasized the creation of public transit, you know, marshrutkas, 
um, uh, Metro, uh, Electrichka, all all this kind of you know pretty developed, especially compared to the U.S. You know, uh, public transit. So, what was the relationship and dynamic between public transit infrastructure in Soviet cities and the um, and the increase in car ownership? How did they deal with, for example, how did they navigate? the overlap, the tensions, or maybe the complementary uh, infrastructure? Because I'm thinking, of course, about a city like Los Angeles in the United States, where the entire city was built for cars, right? And so you have city, Soviet cities that didn't necessarily, um, that were being built in ways that weren't expecting necessarily, or didn't have in mind in an ideological way, or necessarily infrastructural way, the uh, expansion of car ownership. So how did that work? So I, I, I talked about why uh, a Fausti, Faustian bargain is a good metaphor for uh, the state's motivations, right? So they wanted to be able to provide cars to some extent, at least, you know, to try to satisfy some of the demand. But, you know, on the other hand, that meant a lot of people engaging in private activity, like you know, picking up people and charging them for rides and other ways in which cars were being used illegally, and also, uh, you know, it meant people devoting more and more time to their own cars rather than engaging in sort of public collective activity. But there's also the other dimension to the Faustian bargain, and that is owning a car in the Soviet Union was a Faustian bargain because, okay, you finally got your car, but where are you going to get it repaired? And where are you going to even fill it up with petrol? And, uh, you know, where are you going to uh, keep it uh, overnight? And because all of that infrastructure was so underdeveloped. Uh, there were, were so few petrol stations in the major cities. And uh, there were so few that, in fact, uh, standard practice of car owners was to do deals with truck drivers who got supplies of fuel to run the trucks that they could then siphon off for a price to uh, fill up the tanks of car owners. Uh, and, you know, this kind of deal-making and hiring of uh, people uh, to uh, fix cars uh, because there were so few, so few places uh, that... So the infrastructure is really lacking and um, the alternative activities really kind of mushroom. And this, this feeds into the whole phenomenon of the so-called uh, second economy, right? This is a major phenomenon of the late Soviet period. You know, this uh, off the books, shadow economy, it's been termed, um, using parts from, from your workplace to take home to fix this or that, or to lend for a price, the swapping of favors, blot, all of this is very much connected to the 
emergence of a of a uh, car economy. Did you by chance uh, look into Soviet exports of vehicles? A little bit, yes. So I'm aware and, of that. Yeah, just because, you know, I mean, there are certain Soviet products. Obviously, the AK-47 is probably the most famously exported Soviet-made good. Um, but but Soviet vehicles, too, of course, made their way to various countries and are now mainstay in, in certain places. And, you know, I'm curious, like, um, you know, what did you find about so the, the, the significance both in terms of, you know, exporting so the, the image of the USSR, uh, building uh, relations with other countries? Uh, what role did the vehicle play? So the Lada, of course, is the one that was exported most. And uh, it had a niche of sorts in Western Europe, uh, in Britain, even, uh, in Finland. Uh, and the, the niche was uh, as the first car for, um, you know, young people, not, you know, who couldn't afford more expensive cars because the price was quite quite low. Um, of course, uh, the Lada was built to be self-repaired uh, because um, uh, because of the sh shortage of repair facilities, but also because of uh, how often it tended to break down, uh, how many times one needed to repair replace parts um and um it you know it had a simple uh, stroke engine that um lent itself to self repair uh so um other than those countries i think there were intentions of exporting it to the united states but the um the yugo beat it out um, so this is the Yugoslav uh, made car. Um, and that was not very long lasting itself. Can I ask how much this car cost? I'm sorry. First, do you remember about how much? So uh, in, in the Soviet Union or, or abroad? In the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, yes. So... I'm about 6,000 rubles, which doesn't sound like much today, of course, but in Soviet times, was about, I think, I'm remembering something like three times the annual salary. Does that make sense? You know, an average, average, salary i should if it's so expensive how are people affording it yeah how is there such a huge demand cooling familial uh and and years of accumulation uh and um uh, there were there, unfortunately there was very little in the way of uh down payment systems in the Soviet Union. I wanted to mention also that, you know, between public transportation and car ownership, there was a brief attempt under Khrushchev for a system of renting cars uh, that 
you know, really had, in my view, a lot going for it, but it was very unpopular. Um, it did not satisfy many people at all. But, you know, the notion was, you know, why should a car sit unused for much of the time when, you know, a single owner is not using it? Why not? It's much more rational to make it available to people who want to, you know, need a car from 8 uh, p.m. to 11 p.m. when, you know, this kind of thing. Um, it lasted for less than a decade and, um, you know, it was highly criticized. You mentioned, uh, obviously, you'd spent a lot of time um, study, studying minors. And you also talked about how you made it to the car factories in the USSR, the Toliani factory. And one thing I'm kind of interested in is like, you know, miners are producing something very important, but it's not a consumer good. And then the workers who are working on the factory line at an auto plant are producing this you know, very desirable consumer good. And so did the difference in the commodity being produced affect the workers' vision of themselves, understanding of their worth and importance? And did that play into um, any aspect of kind of like um, Soviet working class culture? the difference between say the, the working class culture of the miners and the working class culture uh, politically and on the ground uh, in a, you know, auto auto factory, which is a more modern factory um, type situation. Right. So Soviet car production, you know, really does depend on the technologies that had been developed elsewhere when, when they get started. And, you know, that's essentially means the assembly line. And so these are largely assembly line workers. Um, you know, in the case of, for example, uh, Gaz in Nizhny Novgorod, you know, none other than uh, Walter and Victor Ruther, the heads of the uh, United Automobile Workers Union, who were Ford workers, come over in the late 30s and uh, provide their expertise teaching workers how to work on the assembly line. Um, so it's, of course, a very different kind of labor that they're engaged in. It's uh, you know, very time specific and uh, you know, time and motion specific, I should say, uh, in a way that um, is really quite different from mining, I think there, you know, there, there, there were labor heroes, however, um, uh, along the lines of the Stakhanovite movement. Uh, and um, it's also a much more urban existence. I think this is the other difference I would, I would stress, yeah. So, you know, there are whole districts of Moscow to this day that are you know, Proletarsky Rayon, for example, is a auto, it's an auto town within Moscow. Uh, but, you know, there is Moscow. Uh, and and similarly with, with Toliati, although, you know, I called it a car town, actually Toliati is a town of a lot of industries, but it, it, and although not a capital city by any means, it's large enough to be, to feel urban. 
so I'd say those are the two principal differences. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the insights have been really good. I really personally like the whole minors, uh, discussing minors and consumption. I think they're both really interesting, important topics. Um, I think one of the things I always want to ask, um, not ask, but I think about all the time, with um, sort of Anthropocene, like this in more environmental, ecological approach to Marxism, it's sort of what Soviet Union was doing in the sense of not having as many consumptive consumption or consumptive goods, right? Was actually environmentally <laughs> what what people are trying to do, right? So the entire a lot of the not entire, but I think a lot of the critique of Soviet Union rests on this whole consumption goods all the time, right? It's the way showing these like insanely beautiful like supermarkets decorated with like millions of products and then that as opposed to the union i don't know what you said but uh yeah 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 or yeah exactly like oh like soviet leaders visit us and are like oh my god why aren't we capitalists yet you know like so it's been 30 years and we are now more and more certain of our doom, of <laughs> global doom, because of this unregulated consumption. And not only is it environmentally bad, and it's going to maybe kill us all, but also it's shown to have terrible psychological elements of overconsumption and so much just constantly choosing what to buy and buying, buying and buying and buying. Um, and it's also just made us these huge consumers in everything we do. So there's many reasons to be against consumption, at least this level of consumption. Everyone I know who was alive during the Soviet Union, including me as a kid, we had pretty much everything one needs. I eat almost the same food I would be eating in the Soviet Union, right? Sometimes I have an avocado or something or banana, but mostly it's the same stuff. We love hachapuri cheese bread, which we had the walnuts with, you know, egg, you know, with the um, eggplant walnuts and so on and so on. It's the same. I drink the same tea, like really not that much different. And I don't need to eat all these manufactured goods because actually they're bad for you and at least obesity and problems and health problems. So with knowing all this now, where at least some parts of the world has knowledge that some parts are still fighting the global warming thing, but knowing that degrowth, degrowth, you know, communism or degrowth socialism, um, in maybe to evaluate <laughs> the Soviet Union from the 2023 lens in that instead of say 1990 lens or 1980 lens or 1970 lens. That would be, yeah, that would be a, my sort of last um, question. I know it's a long question. I apologize, like I'm- No, I, I entirely agree. And, and we should do more of that. The only problem I can think of is that it runs up against the unfortunate fact that so much of Soviet ideology was growth 
oriented, right? We're going to outproduce. We're going to, you know, we 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 be we become the largest producer of, you know, steel, whatever it was. And, you know, that was a source of pride. And I mean, so there has to be a way of uh, acknowledging that, but also acknowledging what, what, you're, what you're pointing to is that for most people, most of the time, in most places, um, you know, the kind of self-contained, limited consumption that they that they experienced uh, has some something to say for it. What do you think, uh, as somebody coming from the left who's who spent all of this time, you know, spent your whole life studying the Soviet past? You know, what do you think an interrogation or investigation of, of the Soviet story can offer us today? I think what it offers is that the Soviet model, such as it were, or such as we might call it, um, was a first try. And inevitably, first tries are mistaken in many ways, uh, are excessive, are inadequate, um, precisely because they are first tries. And uh, of course, it you know gets imposed on other countries, and it distorts uh, even those versions of socialism that uh, you know react against it in some ways. Um, but you know, looking thirty some odd years now, uh, oh, beyond. Um, it should not be dismissed, written off, you know, put to rest, as it were. We need to draw upon it um, and, you know, keep on reassessing. And even as, uh, as difficult as this may be to, uh, to accommodate, um, you know, be inspired. So much of what you know, you and Sopa have talked about that uh, in, that I find it inspiring. So I am really grateful. Yeah.